0: Well, good morning, men. It's just such a joy to be part of a congregation of pastors and church leaders singing praise to our King. And Bob, thank you for leading us so well. Thank you for braving the elements this morning. This is what we in Southern California call a storm. I know for most of you, this is just weather as usual. So... Please take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 9. John chapter 9 will be our text this morning. And this morning I would like to tell you the stories of two blind men. The first did not go physically blind until the end of his life. The second was born blind, but both provide a vivid illustration of spiritual blindness. First of these two men was born nearly 300 years ago in Britain, 1725. His mother died when he was a young boy, and so at the age of 11, he joined his father, who worked as a sailor. This young man spent his teenage years growing up on sailing ships where he learned to act and to talk like sailors do. fact, he learned the lifestyle so well that he gained a reputation for having a particularly foul mouth even for a sailor. In his young adulthood, he was conscripted into the British Navy, where he was made a midshipman until he was caught trying to desert, and as a result, he was punished by being publicly flogged and stripped of his rank. From there, he transferred to a slave ship he was unable to get along with the crew and they hated him so much that they left him behind in west africa where he found himself in forced servitude for a period of 3 years eventually he was rescued by a sea captain whom his father had sent to find him and upon returning to england he continued to work on ships that were part of the slave trade an occupational choice he would later come to deeply regret and openly denounce. And when we consider the life of this man, especially at this period in his life, it's hard to imagine a clearer example of one who exhibited spiritual blindness and unbelief. He was an immoral, unruly, foul-mouthed sailor, who made his living through the horrors of human trafficking. Yet God in His grace would open this man's eyes to the truth. That process began when his ship got caught in a major storm, much worse than this one. In a violent storm off the coast of Ireland, and he thought for sure he was going to die, and in his panic, he cried out to God for mercy, and unexpectedly, he survived. But even though this motivated him to clean up his act, it still did not bring him to the place where he fully understood what it meant To be a follower of Jesus Christ, he did not fully grasp the implications of the gospel. That understanding came later as he studied the Word of God and was conformed to its teachings. In the year 1754, he wasn't even 30 years old yet, he suffered a severe stroke that forced him to leave his career as a sailor, and he began to study Greek and Hebrew. And a decade later, he became a pastor. Well, if you haven't guessed it already, the man I am speaking about is the well-known British minister and abolitionist, John Newton. And when he came to the end of his life, Newton did experience physical blindness. His physical eyesight did fail him. He suffered vision loss before he died in 1807, but I think if you had asked him even at the end of his life about his blindness, he would have said only a little bit about his physical eyesight, and instead he would have pointed to his younger years when his heart and mind were blinded by unbelief. In fact, he said at the end of his life... Although my memory is fading, I remember two things clearly. I am a great sinner, and Christ is a great Savior. Those are the words of a man who once was spiritually blind, but by God's grace he had come to see the truth, of saving faith in Jesus Christ. Well, there's a second blind man that I'd like to tell you about this morning. Unlike Newton, who experienced blindness at the end of his life, this man was born blind. But what both men have in common is that they are both vivid examples of spiritual blindness, of an inability to see the truth until God opened The eyes of their hearts. And we meet this second man in our passage this morning, John chapter 9. The theme of this session is the spiritual sight of the remnant. The spiritual sight of the remnant. And if you're looking for perhaps a more specific title, we might call this message Eyes to See eyes to see. In fact, that phrase is used throughout Scripture as a rebuke to those who can see physically and yet remain blind to the truth. They have eyes to see in the physical sense, and yet they do not perceive that which is most important. In Jeremiah chapter 5, verse 21, the Lord condemned the unbelief of Judah with these words, Now hear this, O foolish and senseless people, who have eyes but do not see, who have ears but do not hear. God gave a similar warning to the prophet Ezekiel in Ezekiel chapter 12, verse 2. You live in the midst of a rebellious house, who have eyes to see but do not see, and ears to hear but do not hear. Centuries later, our Lord expressed these same sentiments in explaining why He taught in parables. In Matthew 13, verse 15, quoting from Isaiah, He said, For the heart of this people has become dull. With their ears they scarcely hear, and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise, they would see with their eyes." Apostle Paul quoted also from Isaiah in Acts 28, verse 27, and then in Romans 11, verse 8, making a similar point, he quotes from Deuteronomy 29 to say this, "'God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes to see not, and ears to hear not, down to this very day.'" And I cite those examples because they illustrate the fact that Scripture uses blindness as a metaphor for unbelief. There are many in our society today who see the physical world around them, and yet they do not perceive spiritual reality. They have eyes to see, but they do not see. And that same thing was true In Jesus' day, in John 8, just one chapter earlier, verse 12, Jesus declared, "'I am the light of the world. He who follows Me will not walk in the darkness, but will have the light of life.'" And yet many of the people who heard those words harden their hearts in unbelief. In fact, at the end of chapter 8, the religious leaders want to put Jesus to death. This chapter, John 9, provides a vivid illustration of what Jesus said in John 8, verse 12, that He is the light of the world, and yet there are many who reject Him because they are blinded in their unbelief. So let's look at this text together in John chapter 9. And as we go through this text, which admittedly we will do quickly because it's a large section, but this text, as we unpack it, it unfolds like a dynamic drama in seven different scenes. Seven different scenes And as we work our way from scene to scene, we will see the vivid contrast between spiritual blindness and spiritual sight. And as we go, we will look in the text for those who have eyes to see. The unfolding drama, it opens in verses 1 to 7 with the first scene. That first scene is the condition of the blind man, the condition of the blind man, verses 1 to 7. I find it amazing in this passage as we consider the condition of this man because it provides for us such a vivid illustration of our own condition as those who once were blind. Look at verse 1 of John 9. As he, Jesus, passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And Jesus' disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? Stopping there for a moment, consider the condition of this blind man. First, we notice that he was physically disabled. He was blind from birth. He has never seen a single thing in his entire life. Second, we learn that he was socially despised. Adding insult to injury, the disciples assume he must be under some sort of divine judgment. Who sinned? This man or his parents. That sentiment was in keeping with the way that many in first-century Judaism thought that any sort of physical infirmity must be the result of some sort of personal sin. In verse 8, we'll learn a third detail about this man. He was financially destitute, forced to beg for a living just to survive. So here we see this man in a helpless condition, disabled, despised, destitute, and along comes our Lord. Although this man's condition was treated with contempt from the disciples, He will meet with compassion from the Savior. Look at our Lord's words in verse 3. Jesus answered, it was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. Immediately our Lord makes it clear that in this case, this man's infirmity is not the result of his own sin or his parents' sin, but rather this is something that God has preordained so that he might put his works on display. And though personal sin can sometimes have physical consequences, it's certainly wrong to assume that someone suffering from a physical ailment is under the judgment of God, and the disciples should have known better if they had known their Old Testaments. One of the most famous examples, of course, is Job, who suffered greatly, though he had not done anything wrong. And as Jesus explains here in this text, so is the case with this man. And our Lord continues in verses 4 and 5. He says, We must work the works of Him who sent Me as long as it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. In verse 4, the Lord was speaking about the time remaining in His earthly ministry as He anticipated the cross. In verse 5, He reiterated His earlier declaration from chapter 8, verse 12, that He is the light of the world. And that is the reality the blind man will experience in this text. And he will experience it in, in two ways, first physically and later spiritually. And so this man's physical condition, having been born blind, will be used by God to bring glory to his Son as Christ fulfills his earthly ministry leading to the cross and demonstrates beyond doubt that he is indeed the light of the world. What better way to show that than to heal a blind guy? Well, the scene continues in verse 6. When he had said this, our Lord spat on the ground and made clay of the spittle and applied the clay to his eyes and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. And so he went away and washed, and he came back seeing. Much like he had done on the sixth day of creation in Genesis chapter 2. Verse 7, God the Son took some dirt and He formed it into clay, which He placed on this man's eyes. In fact, it may be that He was actually fashioning new eyes for this man to give this man physical sight, and then He sent him to wash in the pool of Siloam there in Jerusalem near the old city of David. And this was the very place where the water was drawn during the Feast of Booths, which Jesus had recently celebrated. In John 7, verse 37 to 39, and it was that very water in those pitchers brought to that feast that our Lord used to make this declaration that He was the water of life. And so here in John 9, the light of the world instructs this dear man to go to the pool of Siloam and to wash in the very water that symbolized that Jesus is not only the light of the world, but also the water of life. And then in the most unstated way, the Apostle John says, he came back seeing Being so instructed by our Lord, the man obeyed, and his obedience was rewarded, so that at the end of verse 7, the man who had never seen anything was suddenly able to see. What a way to confirm that our Lord is who He claimed to be, the Son of God, the Creator, the light of the world, the water of life, and the Messiah who works the works of the Father. And so we might ask at this point as we evaluate this first scene, did this man have eyes to see? And the answer at the beginning of the chapter is obviously no, he was a blind man. But by the time we get to verse 7, we see that he does have physical sight, And yet, the spiritual sight is yet to come. The Lord gave him eyes to see. At this point, they see only physically, but soon they will see spiritually as well. We move then to a second scene from the condition of the man in verses 1 to 7. Scene 2 the confusion of the neighbors the confusion of the neighbors in verses 8 to 12. John records, Therefore the neighbors and those who previously saw him as a beggar were saying, Is this not the one who used to sit and beg? Others were saying, This is he. And still others were saying, No, but he is like him. And he kept saying, I'm the guy. But they were saying to him, how then were your eyes opened? He answered, the man who is called Jesus made clay and anointed my eyes and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went away and washed and received sight. And they said to him, where is he? And he said, I do not know. In this scene, we meet the man's neighbors. Those who had walked past Him day after day, probably for His entire life, seeing Him there on the side of the road, unable to see, begging for a living. And like the disciples, they almost certainly presumed that this man was under God's judgment. Certainly, he or his parents did something wrong And so, they likely ignored him, and rather than treating him with compassion, they treated him with contempt, (coughs) calloused to the indifference, calloused and indifferent to the plight of this blind man. So, one day, out of the blue, when he showed up seeing, some of them questioned if he was really that same guy. And like stereotypical neighbors, they exhibit a mixture of both confusion and curiosity. They want to know what's going on, but they don't have the full picture. According to verse 9, some of them recognized him, others weren't so sure, and when he insisted that he really was that same blind guy, their response was one of sustained skepticism. In verse 10, they ask Him, how did this happen to you? And He answered, it was Jesus, but they're still not satisfied. Verse 12, where is He? Well, the blind man did not have an answer for them. Perhaps he did not see where Jesus had gone, Obviously, he was blind when he had left Jesus and gone to the pool of Siloam, and when he finally could see, he didn't know where Jesus was. Because the neighbors are not satisfied by the answers that he gives, they reach out to the religious leaders. But what's amazing is that these neighbors were given the rare privilege of witnessing a miracle, and yet they totally missed it. The miracle was standing right in front of them, a guy who had been blind in their community for years, probably his whole life. They probably knew him as a kid, the blind boy. And here he is. He can see, and Jesus did it, and they don't get it. They miss it. And I'm sure for this blind man, he was astounded by their response. He was so excited. He hasn't seen a thing in his life. Now he can see everything, and he wants to come back and celebrate this with his neighbors and later with his parents. And instead of being received with joy, he's received with skepticism. We don't even think you're you. (laughs) And so we ask the question that we asked in our first scene of the neighbors in this scene, and that is, did they have eyes to see? Did they have eyes to see? Well, physically, yes. Yes but spiritually, no. They were blind by their skepticism. They were blind by their incredulity, and as a result, they missed the miracle that was standing right there. We move then from the condition of the man and the confusion of the neighbors to the consternation of the Pharisees. This is our third scene in verses 13 to 17, the consternation of the Pharisees. Not knowing what to do with this formerly blind man, his neighbors bring him to the Pharisees, the local religious experts. Look at verse 13, they brought him to the Pharisees brought to the Pharisees the man who was formerly blind. Now, it was a Sabbath on the day when Jesus made the clay and opened this man's eyes. And then the Pharisees also were asking him again how he received his sight. And he said to them, He applied clay to my eyes, and I washed, and I see. If we stop there for just a moment, we note that Jesus performed other healing miracles on the Sabbath. He did so to demonstrate that He was the Lord of the Sabbath, and also to directly confront the religious rabbinic traditionalism of superficial Pharisaic Judaism. In fact, in John 5, Jesus healed a lame man by the pool of Bethesda on the Sabbath. He told that man to pick up his pallet and walk on the Sabbath, which constituted work according to those extra-biblical rabbinic restrictions, And for that, the Pharisees wanted to put him to death. These Sabbath rules that the Pharisees sought to enforce were not biblical. They were rabbinic additions to Mosaic law. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 to 13, Jesus directly confronted the Pharisees for their hypocrisy because they had, in fact, elevated the traditions of men above the Word of God. He issued a similar rebuke in John 7, verse 23, just two chapters earlier, noting the inconsistency of the fact that they were willing to perform circumcisions on the Sabbath, and yet they created all sorts of other unbiblical rules and forced them upon the people. Jesus' miracles on the Sabbath demonstrated that He is the Creator and the Lord, God the Son, the Lord of the Sabbath. Here in John 9, that same rabbinical tradition was a stumbling block that these Pharisees could not get past. So, verse 16. Therefore, some of the Pharisees were saying, This man, meaning Jesus, is not from God because he does not keep the Sabbath. But others were saying, how can a man who is a sinner perform such signs? And there was a division among them. They're so caught up on their rabbinic rule-keeping that they can't decide what to make of Jesus. Is He a good guy or a bad guy? Well, He doesn't keep the Sabbath rules that we try to enforce, but He does give blind people the ability to see. They're undecided and so they decide to ask the blind man. And at this point he does not fully understand the reality and its fullness of who Jesus is, but he knew enough to know that Jesus came from God and so verse 17 they said to the blind man, "What do you say about him since he opened your eyes?" "We don't know, what do you think?" And he said, he is a prophet. And while that is not a complete picture of who Jesus Christ is, for he is far more than a prophet, this man's answer was far better than the supposed religious experts. So we might ask the question of this scene, our third scene in this unfolding drama, did these Pharisees have eyes to see? The answer, like the man's neighbors, is that physically yes, but spiritually no. The neighbors were blinded by their skepticism. These Pharisees are blinded by their religious tradition. Well, the drama continues in verses 18 to 23 with a fourth scene. Here we meet the man's parents we might call this scene the cowardice of his parents the cowardice of the parents verse 18 the Jews then did not believe this of him that he had been blind and ha- had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight and they questioned them saying is this your son who you say was born blind, then how does he now see? These religious leaders are doubtful of this man's testimony. They don't believe that he was telling the truth. And so they reach out to his parents to begin to interrogate them. And again, what should have been a wonderful, joyous family moment, our son, who could never see, can finally see becomes a point of intimidation, an interrogation. Is this your son? Yes. Was he really blind? Yes. How did he receive his sight? You can hear the intimidation in the line of questioning, the inquisition as it's leveled against these parents, who are trying to decide if they're supposed to be excited or terrified in this moment? Well, their response is recorded in verse 20. His parents answered and said to them, We know that this is our son. We know that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know, or who opened his eyes, we do not know. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. We don't want to get involved. Rather than volunteering any information beyond the basic facts, these parents plead the fifth. And in case we were unsure of their motivation, of the fear that gripped their hearts, John makes it it explicit in verse 22. His parents said this, verse 22, because they were afraid of the Jews. For the Jews, the Jewish leaders, had already agreed that if anyone confessed Jesus to be the Messiah, that person would be put out of the synagogue. For this reason, his parents said, he is of age, ask him To be put out of the synagogue was to be excommunicated, not just from religious life, but from social life. It was to be condemned, to be cut off, cast out. And this man's parents considered the cost. And they thought about what they would lose, and they decided it was not worth paying that price. And so, in a moment of fear they capitulated. We don't know. We don't know anything. Ask him. He's old enough. He can answer for himself. Their cowardice illustrates a third reason for unbelief, because if we ask ourselves again this question, did these parents have eyes to see, the answer is no. And the reason for their unbelief was the fear of man. Considering the cost, it was too high. And so they walked away. And rather than again celebrating the miracle that was right in front of them, they gave in to fear. They were blinded by the fear of man. Verses 1 to 7, it's the condition of the man. Verses 8 to 12 the confusion of his neighbors. 13 to 17, the consternation of the Pharisees. 18 to 23, the cowardice of his parents. Verses 24 to 34, our fifth scene, the condemnation of the synagogue officials. The condemnation of the synagogue officials. Having interviewed the parents, the religious leaders called the man back for a second interrogation. This group now included the rulers of the synagogue, so probably a larger group than the earlier group of Pharisees. We pick up the narrative there in verse 24. "'So a second time they called the man who had been blind and said to him, "'Give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, we know that this man is a sinner.'" The irony is thick in that verse, because all the way back in verse 3, Jesus had made the point that the reason this man was born blind was so that God would receive glory. Here we have the religious leaders, these corrupt religious officials, demanding that this man lie in order to give God glory. Well, this man will give God glory, but not in the way that these officials expect They had already rejected Jesus in unbelief, and so they treated this man as a hostile witness. But this man will not be intimidated. Consider his response. Verse 25, "'He answered, "'Whether he is a sinner, I do not know. But one thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see.' So they said to him, "'What did he do to you? How did he open your eyes?' And He answered them, I told you already, and you did not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? You do not want to become His disciples too, do you? You have to admire this man's boldness. He recognized their unbelief, and he responded with some incredulity of his own. How was it possible that these religious leaders, as erudite and as educated and as astute as they were supposed to be, could miss the obvious miracle that was right in front of them? I mean, the Old Testament promised that the Messiah would open the eyes of the blind Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6 prophesies that, the, that through the Messiah, the eyes of the blind would be opened. Isaiah 42, 6 and 7, that the Messiah would be a light to the nations to open blind eyes. And yet, in spite of such obvious evidence, the religious leaders, they're not impressed with this man's answer. Verse 28 They reviled him and said, you are his disciple, but we, we are disciples of Moses. We know God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we do not know where he is from. Seeking to defend their position, the leaders appealed to the law of Moses, implying that Jesus, by healing on the Sabbath, was somehow at odds with the Pentateuch, which, of course, was not true. There's no discrepancy between what Jesus did and what Moses taught, only a false dilemma created by centuries of rabbinic ritual and tradition that these Pharisees had added to the Word of God. Amazingly, these leaders acknowledged that Moses came from God, but as for Jesus, they claimed ignorance. We don't know where He is from. Of course, just a few chapters earlier in John chapter 5, verse 46, Jesus Himself said, If you had truly believed Moses, you would believe in Me. The former blind man, he cannot believe what he is hearing. And so, this uneducated, lifelong beggar responds by making a profound theological point. Verse 30, the man answered and said to them, well, here is an amazing thing. You do not know where he is from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is God-fearing and does His will, He hears him. Since the beginning of time, it has never been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a person born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. Again, what boldness… And I'm sure some of these religious leaders are giving this guy really dirty looks, but remember, he's only been able to see for a couple of hours. He's never seen a dirty look before. (laughs) So, he just calls it like he sees it, and he states the obvious. The man who healed me gave me sight and even though I was blind from birth, and that has never happened before. In fact, in all of the Old Testament, you don't have any prophets who heal anyone born blind. The closest we come to is in Second Kings 6 when Elisha, through God's power, temporarily blinded the king of Aram, and then that blindness was later lifted. But Restoring a man who was congenitally blind to being able to see, that's something that was exclusively a miracle of Jesus. In fact, in Jesus' ministry, we have six blind people, where we have a record of them being uh, restored to full sight, four separate occasions, six blind individuals, and this man was one of those six. So this is a momentous miracle, and it's a miracle that in Scripture is reserved exclusively for the Messiah. And so this man understands the theological significance of what's happening, and he recognizes three theological truths here in these verses. First, only God's power could accomplish this kind of miracle. Second, God does not empower the wicked. Third, Jesus must be from God because He is empowered by God to do this. Well, that kind of logic did not sit well with the synagogue officials, you can imagine. And so, verse 34, they answered Him, "'You were born entirely in sin.'" and are you teaching us? Get out. And so they threw him out. Unable to counter his reasoning, they responded by attacking him in an ad hominem way. What do you know? You're a blind beggar from nowhere with no education. Get out. They excommunicated him and This man then becomes the first follower of Jesus to be excommunicated from the synagogue. There would be others, of course. Our Lord Himself told the disciples just a few chapters later in John 16 verse 2 that many would be cut off from the synagogue and cast out as a result of following Him. And this man, formerly blind, stands then as a prototype of those who suffer faithfully for Christ. And even though he doesn't fully understand all of who Jesus is quite yet, he knows that Jesus is from God, because only God can do what Jesus did. Jesus had radically changed his life, and he wasn't going to let a group of hypocritical Pharisees tell him otherwise. Verse 25, I once was blind, but now I see. But as for the synagogue officials, we might ask the same question we've been asking all along this morning. Did they have eyes to see? And the obvious answer is no. No, they did not have eyes to see what was right in front of them. They were blinded by spiritual pride lifetimes of religious study, they did not have eyes to see, and in their pride, they refused to see what was right in front of them. That brings us to scene six in our unfolding drama, and this is the climactic scene of the entire narrative. It's the conversion of the sinner, the conversion of the sinner verses 35 to 38. Up to this point, the formerly blind man had only a partial understanding of who the Lord Jesus was. But here, our Lord meets him and gives him full clarity. Look at verse 35. Jesus heard that they had put him out, and finding him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? That title, Son of Man, is a distinctly messianic title coming from Daniel chapter 7. And the man's response indicated that he had not yet fully understood understood who Jesus is. And so, verse 36, he said, "'Lord, who is He that I may believe in Him?' Perhaps the man did not recognize Jesus even now because, again, he had been blind when they first met. Perhaps he did recognize Him but still didn't have full understanding or comprehension of who Jesus is." In any case, the Lord, having opened this man's eyes physically, now opens the eyes of his heart. And the man who was blind both physically and spiritually can now see both physically and spiritually. And so, verse 37, Jesus said to him, You have both seen him, and he is the one who is talking with you. And in that moment, Jesus reveals himself to this man, and the scales of unbelief fall off of his heart, and he comes to embrace the Lord Jesus in saving faith. Verse 38, he said, Lord, I believe, and he worshiped him. Lord, I believe. And then the immediate response of genuine, saving faith, worship. So we come back to the question we've been asking. Did this man have eyes to see? And finally, in this narrative, we can answer that question in the affirmative. Yes. Yes, he had eyes to see because our Lord gave him eyes to see. First, he gave him eyes to see the physical world by literally taking dust and forming it into brand new eyes that he inserted in that man's face so he could see. And then he gave him spiritual eyes in an equally creative, miraculous act. And isn't it ironic that in this passage, the only person who actually is given eyes to see, is the blind man. But that's the point. At the beginning of the story, He's the only person who could not see, but by the end of the story, He's the only person who does. It's on that note that we come to our final scene because we're going to see a contrast with another set of religious leaders This seventh scene we might call the counterfeit religion of the self-righteous, the counterfeit religion of the self-righteous, verses 39 to 41. And having gone from the condemnation of the synagogue officials to the conversion of the man, we now go back to the unbelief of the religious leaders in these final three verses. Verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. Our Lord came to save the lost, but for those who reject Him, the consequence of their unbelief is judgment. And remember, blindness is a metaphor for unbelief. That was the case for these religious leaders For those who recognize their spiritual blindness and cry out to God for mercy, like the blind man, recognizing the helplessness of their spiritual condition, He offers spiritual sight. He opened the eyes of this man. But for those who claim to be spiritually perceptive, thinking they had no need for a Savior because they felt... They felt safe in their own self-righteousness. They hardened their own hearts. They closed their own eyes. Their hearts were blind in their unbelief. They claimed to be able to see, but they could not see. And so even after witnessing what the Old Testament makes clear is a distinctly messianic miracle, even after witnessing such a remarkable healing, the religious leaders still do not get it. Look at verses 40 and 41. Those of the Pharisees who were with him, perhaps a different group, we don't know. But those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things, and they said to Jesus, "'We are not blind too, are we?' And Jesus said to them, "'If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, we see, your sin Remains. Our Lord's point in verse 41 was that if the religious leaders recognized their spiritual blindness, then they would have believed because they would have cried out to God to provide them in His mercy with eyes to see. The sin of unbelief, again, is the sin that Jesus is referring to here, but because they claim to be able to see, relying again on their own self-righteousness and religious ritualistic activity, their unbelief remained. They were still blind, claiming to see they were still blind. And so, if we were to ask again the question we have asked in each of these scenes of these Final Pharisees in verses 39 to 41. Did they have eyes to see? The answer again is no. They thought they did. They thought they understood spiritual realities based on their religious self effort. But because of that, they were unwilling to recognize their spiritual blindness. They were unwilling to acknowledge their need for a savior. And what a vivid illustration of the power of unbelief! The Messiah is standing in front of them having done a distinctly messianic miracle and they still don't get it. As a result, they failed to recognize the light of the world even when He was standing and shining right in front of them. Now, we've made our way quite quickly through these seven scenes in this unfolding drama. And along the way, we met a man with a congenital condition who was cured by a compassionate Creator and Savior. And though the neighbors were confused and the leaders were concerned and the parents were cowards and the synagogue officials were filled with contempt, nonetheless, This man was converted. And honestly, the greatest miracle in this passage is not the restoration of physical sight. It is the fact that this man came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. He was regenerated and renewed and restored to spiritual sight. And yet, because he worshiped and followed Jesus. For that, he was condemned, cut off, and cast off by the world. And yet the cost of all of that for him was nothing. He would give it all up to turn his eyes upon Jesus and see the things of this world grow strangely dim. And so, in the end, this man's conversion stands in stark contrast to the counterfeit righteousness and counterfeit religion of the pharisaical system. What a narrative. Having walked through it, I want to just make two brief observations. First, this chapter reveals the character of spiritual blindness, Why is it that so many close their eyes in unbelief? The neighbors were blinded by skepticism. The Pharisees were blinded by religious tradition. The man's parents were blinded by the fear of man. The synagogue officials were blinded by spiritual pride. And that final group of religious leaders were blinded by their own self-righteousness. And I think that's instructive because those are the same reasons why people in our world close their eyes to the gospel and remain calloused in their unbelief. But second, this chapter also teaches us about the nature of salvation and the spiritual sight of God's remnant. Though many witnessed this man's miracle... Many witnessed His healing. There was only one person who believed. And again, the irony of this passage is that the only person in the chapter who sees is the man who was born blind. It's the blind man alone who sees. And yet, that's not quite accurate, is it? because there was one other person in the chapter who saw. And if you go all the way back to verse 1, you find him there. And Jesus saw. It was our Lord Jesus who saw this man in his condition The man did not see Jesus. Jesus saw the man. The Lord initiated this encounter, and in verse 3 we learn that God had preordained all of this so that His glorious works, His work of salvation, and the deity of His Son would be put on display. And so verses 1 to 7 tell us about the man whom Jesus saw. And then in verses 35 to 38, we learn about the man who saw Jesus. But that's important because it illustrates the fact that in salvation, it is always Christ who takes the initiative. Jesus saw the man. The man did not see Jesus until Jesus changed his life. Even then, it was... Even in verses 35 to 38, it was our Lord who initiated that meeting. It was our Lord who revealed Himself to this man. It was our Lord who said to him, the one who you are seeking is the one who is speaking to you. And only then was this man given the gift of faith, and he believed and he worshiped. What a glorious picture of salvation the condition of this man, destitute, disabled, despised, dead in his sins. And Jesus set his eyes on him. Just as Jesus set his eyes on everyone who comprises his remnant. He gave us eyes to see so that God might receive all the glory. And by His grace, then, we look upon Him in saving faith and embrace Him as the light of the world. And now, having been given eyes to see, each of us can say with this man in John 9.25, I once was blind, but now I see. Well, we began this morning with the story of John Newton, and I chose his story because not only is it a dramatic and well known story, but also because he was one who recognized later in his life the spiritual blindness that had characterized his youth. And in the 1770s, as a pastor, Newton worked on a book of hymns with another English poet named William Cooper. They produced a book of hymns, and in that book, first published in 1779, we find Newton's most well-known hymn. He wrote hymns like, Glorious Things of Thee Are Spoken, How Sweet the Name of Jesus Sounds, and his most famous hymn of all, Faith's Review and Expectation. That's the original title. We call it, of course, Amazing Grace, and we're all familiar with the lyrics, but Think about these words against the backdrop of John 9. Amazing grace. How sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, now I'm found. I was blind, but now I see. From John 9 to John Newton, to us today, the Lord Jesus Christ offers spiritual sight to all to look to Him. He is the light of the world, and all who follow Him will not walk in darkness. But this brings us to a final question, a final question. It's a question each of us must ask ourselves until we are certain of the answer. It's a question we must present to our families and preach to our congregations. It's a question we must proclaim to the world around us because in it we find the only hope for the spiritual blindness of our world. Do you have eyes to see? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the penetrating truth of the gospel of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that you, in your great mercy, take the initiative in drawing sinners to yourself, in revealing the light of the gospel which points to your Son, the light of the world. And we ask that as those who are part of your remnant, not because we deserve it, but because of your unmerited grace, we ask that we would be faithful to proclaim that gospel truth to a world that is shrouded in darkness. May we who have eyes to see call others to look on him in whom they might have eternal life.